Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And today as a recording, it's fall is approaching here in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, yeah, hopefully, eventually. Well, you it know, it tends to take its sweet time. Actually, is today the the very first day of, of fall? Maybe nobody told uh, nature about this because it's <laughs> still pretty warm out there. What do you think of when you think of fall? Uh, I tend to think of falling leaves. I tend to think of um, fresh apple cider. I think of Halloween, and uh, you're going to have your Halloween costume, right? We talked about this the other day. Working on it. Working on it. Are you yeah. going to reveal? No. Okay. Can I reveal what I want you to be for? Okay, go ahead. Well, so, yeah, an albino werewolf. How killer of a of a costume would that be? I totally think you should be an albino werewolf. Well, there have been albino werewolves in like in films before. I was yeah. not aware of this. Yeah, I, I don't know what the film... I distinctly remember seeing a picture of somebody dressed up as like a white werewolf. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Are you calling me unoriginal? No, it's a, it's a cool idea. Especially if you like went... I think even better would be if you went like Edgar Winter's werewolf kind of a thing that would be kind of cool no but, doubt yeah so one of the things i think of when it comes to fall is is butterflies and specifically the awesome monarch butterfly and i'm not just thinking of any monarch butterfly but specifically the ones native to north america okay the ones who undertake this crazy 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 trek across countries um that that spans thousands of miles so just a reminder most of you guys can picture monarch um but it's the bright orange and black butterfly known scientifically as mm, denaus plexippus i'm gonna say also has these tiny little white spots on its wings but it's the most noticeable coloration is the black and orange that's kind of its trademark and they may have been around uh, as long as two million years ago, according to the uh, WWF Conservation Organization. So they totally surpass our measly human existence. Totally. And uh, of course, we have uh, some listeners in Australia. Indeed, we and do. And I'm sure they have uh, they have a different name for these, right? Yeah, they're called wanderer butterflies, or they're often often called. I guess I like that. maybe some, you know, rebellious Australians might call them monarchs, but. I don't know. Like they, they definitely it makes more sense that they're wanderers rather than monarchs. Because what's what's very there's nothing really regal about them except they're pretty looking, right? Oh, Robert. Well, they what are, are they you denigrating the monarch already? We haven't even gotten into the they podcast. don't they don't even have like a system of rule. Like they're just they're they're butterflies. You know? Which incidentally, the, when we were talking about the title for this, monarchs headed for uh for the border, I did kind of have an image of you know Queen Elizabeth or something, you know, hightailing it for yeah Mexico, like just, in, a, in a stolen vehicle. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> so specifically, we wanted to talk about um, the the awesome migration that these North American monarchs do every year. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, you wrote about this for Life back yeah. when we uh, did the Life series. Yeah, I wrote an article about this uh, to go along with uh, yeah, the, uh, the the BBC Discovery uh, show Life, and they did a whole bit with uh, with these guys. Oh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, they caught up with them in New Mexico, though not. Uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, if you, <laughs> if you guys want to catch the footage, I highly recommend going to, uh, over to the Discovery Life site because you, you can still catch some of the migration footage. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really amazing. We'll get to it in a second, but if you look at a tree, um, it kind of looks like the leaves have become orange and black because it's just so heavily populated with, with monarchs. I mean, they're just, it's just like this dense carpet of, of monarchs on a tree, but we'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So this whole migration is uh, of, of monarchs. They're kind of like snowbirds. That's what I was thinking of. You know that Seinfeld episode? Well, there are multiple in which uh, Boca Raton is referenced. Oh, yes, yeah, and Jerry's parents are always heading for Del Boca Vista. So it gets snowy up north and then old people go south to where it's warm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the butterflies are doing the same. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of them doing Yeah. How it, many? Right? We're talking like a billion monarchs make this trip every year, right? Yeah. It's, it's tough to it's tough to gauge monarchs and and count them accurately, but I mean I have heard numbers as high as a billion. I thought they were counting them. I thought there was like one dude, and he like <laughs> yeah, whenever they he fly waits at the over. border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a tricky job. And why do they migrate? Well, obviously they migrate to avoid dying. They're cold blooded and they can't survive the wintry temps. And in fact, if you consider their um, their origination in the American tropics, you know, this all kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So. As we're recording this podcast in Atlanta, Georgia, did you know that we are entering the peak of monarch migration season? Really? Yeah, there's a cool uh, website and organization that keeps track of monarchs, and it's called Monarch Watch. I think it's run out of Kansas. And so they give you um, the the peak season for monarch watching according to your latitude in, in the northern hemisphere. So right now, yeah, end of September through early October for Atlantans. Cool. Now this is a this is a pretty long journey though. I mean, because to get from I mean, even if you're a human on an airplane, it can be kind of a lengthy flight. But if you're like this tiny little insect, just beating your wings you know, like crazy. Right, right. So consider consider the source, right? Monarchs, you know, like to live in uh, the North American monarch lives as, as far north as Canada mm-hmm. and um all over the United States. So they're taking a trek that can be as many as 2,000 miles. I've heard it uh, up to 3,000 miles, depending upon where they're based. So it's a really, really, really long journey. And it's long for any animal out there, not just, you know, one in the insect world, although it is one of the few, if not only, insects uh, that makes this migration, that makes a migration like this. So, and, and just to be clear, like the, the, the butterfly that sets off... On this 1,000-mile journey. Yeah, on this 1,000-mile journey in the north, it's the same butterfly that arrives in the south. Yeah, and the, and and, the, and it's overwintering grounds. Yeah. Um, so I, we should put this in human perspective. I okay. mean, consider that for humans, um, most of us know like the longest distance uh, that's a human might run as, as a marathon, mm-hmm. right? If you're a crazy runner, then maybe we're talking like an ultra marathon, something in the realm of fifty to a hundred kilometers. Okay, so here's something crazy. When I was doing a little research on ultra marathons, mm-hmm. they have a race, and and the basis of this race is that. Um, you're supposed to run as far as you can in 24 hours. Okay. Okay, so that's just that just seems a little crazy to me. Are you racing a, a monarch butterfly the whole time? <laughs> no, no, but I mean, so think about humans. This is like the farthest they're running. And it's really nothing compared to a monarch's journey. It's just not. I mean, any farther distances that we go, we hop in a car, we call it a road trip, or we buy a plane ticket, or we hop on a bike or a train. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you take a long trip, you uh, you put things off. For that trip, you know, like uh, I've, you know, some people say stop shaving for the duration of their vacation because they're on vacation, right? My dad used to do that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were talking about that the other day, and uh, and and some people, um, and this is not maybe not a conscious thing, but some people kind of stop going to the bathroom uh, while they're on vacation. <laughs> Seriously, you haven't heard? Oh, yeah. I yeah. guess I have. <laughs> I mean, part of it, you know, you're in a, you're you're either you're on the move, you're in sure, a strange get place, sort and, of backed up. Yeah, and suddenly things aren't really going at the same like uh, frequency as they normally do. Right. But uh, these butterflies, the monarchs, they take it to a whole new level. Like, what what do these guys put off doing? Yeah, that's true. They they, uh, they put off mating and dying and dying. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, okay. So while all of us are, you know, thinking about fall things, we're thinking about, you know, pumpkins and Halloween costumes and mm-hmm. albino werewolves. There's this whole generation of monarchs, a special generation of monarchs that's busy hatching from eggs. They're growing into caterpillars. They're hanging out for a while as uh, pupas to wait out the transformation mm-hmm. until they finally emerge as butterflies, as monarch butterflies. So only after this whole overwintering seven month long journey is complete can they right can they carry on the li- cycle of life and death and and reproduction yeah it, it'd be like if a human took on a project and they were like well it would take me two lifetimes to complete this and you just your body decided to let you live for two lifetimes till you completed this really important task yeah it's really really interesting I mean so you wind up with this dichotomy in um, monarch generations you have the one that kind of you know, feeds on milkweed and flutters around and mates mm-hmm. and uh, lays eggs and stuff like that. And then you have the other one that, that lives for months. And to, to give and you... It has pers- a really hard journey. <laughs> like, it's not really getting up to a lot of fun, you know. I guess it gets to see the see a lot more, uh, you know, of the, of the countryside, but... Uh, yeah, it gets to see a lot of the countryside. Probably a lot more than, you know, some of our fellow countrymen have seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so your your lifespan for just a regular old monarch, uh, one who's not making that journey, is going to be four or five weeks. But like we're talking about with the Methuselah generation, you're, they're going to live to uh, as long as seven or eight months. Right. So in human terms, think of it like this. When, when you were writing this article for uh, the Life series, mm-hmm. you're comparing it to somebody living maybe to the ripe old age of 100, which is kind of a long lifespan for a uh-huh. human. And then the, if you were born in this Methuselah generation as a human, you would live to be a couple centuries old. Yeah. That's a really long life. Yeah, it's really interesting. I can't help but think of like uh, like sci-fi possibilities for this. You know, it's like instead of, you know, frequently you see like, uh, you know, people go on some sort of like space journey and they freeze themselves. So suspended animation. Yeah, suspended animation and all that to survive the trip. But like what if they just like, you know, through genetic tinkering or something, just like took on an extra long lifespan to see their way through the journey, you know? Well, another interesting part of the journey, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, is that while they're overwintering in, in Mexico or in California and they're kind of roosting in these trees and these mm-hmm. giant swarms of monarchs, they're, they're a little sluggish. They're not in hibernation, per se. A lot of um, naturalists will call it torpor, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, so it's just this kind of slower um, metabolism going on. Yeah. You know, they're just they're chilling out a little bit. The monarchs are. Yeah, they're just kicking back and taking it easy. So here's something interesting. How do they know when it's time to motor? Yeah, they can't just, uh, you know, check their email and say, oh, today's the day, or look on a calendar. They have to uh, uh, use a much more biological means, right? Yeah. So one guess, I mean, we haven't figured this out entirely. Um, there, there's a guess out there that they have a body clock, and this body clock is basically made of proteins, and the proteins run on sunlight. Mm-hmm. So as your days are getting shorter and, and fall is really getting into the rhythm, the protein clock, um, its rhythm changes, and the monarchs respond by picking up sticks. Right, and their navigational system also takes advantage of that body clock, right? Yep. It allows them to, to get their bearings according to the sun's position in the sky, and uh, they navigate accordingly. Yeah, and so there are a couple other factors that people think might influence monarch migration and, and direction and navigation, all that good stuff, including wind, of mm-hmm. course, and then the uh, Earth's magnetic field, yeah. and uh, also a little atmospheric pressure factoring into uh, to see that the monarch gets where it's going. Okay, so we, we've talked a little bit about it, but where are they headed? Well, butterflies living west of the Rocky Mountains uh, are likely uh, headed to California coast to uh, overwinter. Going back to Cali. Yeah. 
And then the the divide, so on the east side of the Rockies, they're heading for central Mexico and uh, two central Mexican states in general. Generally speaking, you're going to find them in uh, these unique forests. They're called OML forests if you're if you're heading to Mexico. And I had no idea what an OML forest is. And it's it's one filled with OML firs. Or basically, there's these are just trees at like high altitudes. Um, and there aren't really a whole lot of these um, OML firs or the OML forests. Um, you might also find a couple of like cedar or pine or oak trees in these forests, according to uh, WWF, the conservation organization. Yeah, not the the wrestling federation. <laughs> I don't have really anything to do with this, but uh, but yeah, the the sad part is that these um, these forests are disappearing, right? Yeah, thanks to stuff like you know deforestation and logging yeah. and all that. And it, the thing is, is that even though some of these lands have been designated as butterfly preserves, um, they're still feeling the effects. Mm. So, what do they need in a roosting spot? Like, why are they picking these very specific spots in California and Mexico? Well, they're, the trees are a good place to stay. They're, uh, you know, they provide good shelter, you know, barrier against the wind and the weather, because uh, they need to like chill out and you know, like crank things down a notch and just kind of be sluggish for a little bit. Yeah, and also at that high altitude, there's a, there's a lot of cloud cover, and there's also some cool weather coming in, so they like that that moisture, and then the cool temperature again kind of lets them take it down a notch and conserve energy, and. um a lot of times the OML forests are going to have some sort of local watering hole. That, yeah, they got know. a drink. Right, right. And then the the best part is you get a lot of your fellow monarchs to keep you company. That's right. They're they're in these, uh, if you you know look up photos or certainly if you watch the footage from life, you'll see that they're just huge uh, masses of them in the trees. Like the tree just looks alive with butterflies. I mean, it is alive with butterflies and and then they'll suddenly shift from one tree to the, to another due to some you know small disturbance. It's just really beautiful. But there's so many of them, yeah. So it's just like, like just you know huddling together at a you know football game for for, for warmth. warmth. Yeah. Right. Right. So if they fall off the tree, uh, they're in trouble when night falls and the temperature drops. There was a. Did you do you remember the footage again from Life? Sorry for harping on this, guys. But they they show it a time lapse photography where the yeah um, where one the falls down and. He's doomed. And he just sort of kind yeah, of really ices over. It's a beautiful sequence. Yeah. Yeah, so then um, once they've, they've stayed there, roughly until March, things start to warm up. They, you know, get their metabolism kicking back up a notch. And what's the first thing they do? Uh, lay their eggs in some milkweed. Or yeah, they mate. do a little mating, yeah. Yeah. right? And then they uh, they get on with the dying, right? <laughs> the monarchs get on with the they dying. They put it off long enough, and now it's time to just, uh, you know, pack it up. Yeah, again, I think this is really just one of the coolest things uh, in the natural world, one of the coolest journeys in the natural world. It, it is indeed. I mean, just the, the whole idea that it's like one generation lives uh, super long to just take this incredible journey. I mean, especially on an insect level. It's like it's pretty amazing when you look at the migrations that birds, uh, you know, uh, just regularly uh, go on. But these these guys are it just it just kind of boggles the mind. Like I get I get lost just, you know, trying to go to the grocery store. You know, and these guys are, are you know, going across the globe. Yeah, and passing on the knowledge of uh, where their home is originally, right? Because mm-hmm. your uh, Methuselah generation is going to wind up dying. So then you're going to have successive generations that head back to maybe some corner of Canada or wherever they're from. So it's so interesting. I think that's something that we can definitely learn from monarch migration. Like, how are they passing this information down from generation to generation? I mean, yeah. how I would like to know a little bit more detail on how the how the navigation system works. Yeah, and what triggers the uh, the Methuselah generation? You know, like what what special thing? Like, could you could you take a monarch butterfly and like 
like uh, like just put its uh, you know eggs in the right place. And well, I mean, I know some of the research definitely suggests that it's the physiological changes that are special to this generation mm-hmm. um, relate to temperature, huh. plain and simple. Interesting. Yeah. So, what would you hope to learn from this? Crazy migration. I mean, it definitely holds stuff for space travel, like um, we were getting at. Well, yeah, potentially. I don't know how far-fetched it is, but I, I can't help but think of that, you know? It's like the idea of of somehow extending, uh, you know, the human lifespan for a particular important purpose, you know? It'd be, or kind of like, uh, I, I, I think back to, to Ender's Game, you know? And like the whole deal, uh, they had a character in that who was really important to the human race, and they're like, how can we make this guy stick around longer? And uh, they came up with a a a, a relativity based uh, answer to that problem. But like, what if we were in a position to uh, to just uh, pick particular people? They're like, hey, this scientist is really important, or you know, we really lo- we really love Stephen Hawking. We want him to stick around for an extra century, you know, until he gets all of his work done. So we uh, we find a way to uh, to trigger those changes. Well, maybe one kind of informal experiment we could do is we could, you know. Just send them all to Mexico and kind of let them hang out in trees for a couple months and, and see how that, you know, influences their lifespan. What do you think? Yeah, that's perfectly sane. I think that's uh, <laughs> totally the solution. Uh, so that about wraps it up for our crazy migration. Um, I got a little listener mail. Oh, let's have it. Listener mail. Yeah, so I got a cool uh, listener email from Australian Madeline, and she wrote to tell us, among a couple of things, that um, she was listening to one of our older Book Sniffers podcasts. And so after listening to uh, the book sniffing, she decided to try it on her math textbook. Because of the dyes in man-made paper, I nearly fainted. So- oh, wow. <laughs> Do not sniff your math textbook or your maths textbook. Yeah, so we're glad you lived to tell us about it, Madeline. And a uh, left-handed listener, I just love it when, when listeners write in and tell me their, their handedness. Yeah, you're, you're nodding because you're writing, you don't like it quite as much. But Brian, left-handed listener Brian, wrote in to tell us, um, we were, I guess we were talking about shoelaces in our altruism podcast. Were we? Yeah, yeah, we were talking, cause we read that listener email, uh, about the, she learned to tie her oh, shoelaces yes, yes, when yes. she was 12 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Brian wrote in to tell us that there's, in fact, a correct way to tie your shoelaces that oh, I had no idea yeah. about. I, and I bet it's a, the lefty way, right? <laughs> no, it's a, there's a video on uh, Runner's World magazine. And it has to do with these, um, the knot, the kind of knot that you tie. I had not heard of this. No pun intended. Um, yeah, it's like it has to do with reef knots and granny knots. And apparently if you're tying granny knots, then no good. I was always horrible at knots. I, uh, I I think I got the merit badge for it when I was in Scouts, but I was I was horrible at knots. I don't. I have to. I can tie a square knot, but I have to like take a running start at it. <laughs> and hey, let's end with a joke because sometimes we really really like yeah, the bad science, science jokes. Yeah, good science jokes. So we had a listener Mike L write in with a couple, and uh, here here was one of my favorites, um, Robert. Yes. Why are astronomers considered to be loners? Why are astronomers considered to be loners? Because they like their personal space. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. I thought it would have to do with, like, personal grooming or something. But. Let's end on a high note. If you guys have a joke you want to send us or anything else about uh, the wonderful world of butterflies and migrating animals, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Yeah, or uh, ch- yeah, check us out on Facebook, where we're Stuff in the Science Lab. Or you can also find us on Twitter, uh, where we are Lab Stuff. And we uh, love to keep that updated with all sorts of cool science stuff. So that's all we got. Thanks for listening, guys.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. <laughs>